If I were to ask you to share with me where the Christmas story begins, many of you would take me, of course, to Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 1. But uh, how many of you would take me to the Old Testament? Maybe some of you super spiritual people, right? How many of you would take me to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis? We're going to learn this morning and in our text next week that the Christmas story begins at the beginning. It it really begins before the, the beginning began, what is known as the covenant of redemption. When the Father, Son, and and Holy Spirit agreed in eternity past that God the Son would come from heaven to earth and become a man to accomplish salvation for all who believe on Him. It begins when God the Son was first promised to man to be sent to be the Savior of mankind. The first Christmas message was preached thousands of years before Christ's birth. And it was preached by God Himself. And at that time that that message was preached, the whole human race, along with Satan himself, was in the congregation. You have your Bibles? Turn to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. This morning we are beginning a two-part Christmas series we're calling Promised and Fulfilled. This week we're going to talk about the promise that was made of the Messiah who was going to come in Genesis 3. And next week we'll look at the fulfillment of that in John chapter 1. Examining the Christmas story from these two unlikely places. Some of you may think it's strange that it's Christmas time and and we're not going to be talking about a, a birth in Bethlehem. But what we find throughout the scriptures is that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, existed long before the events in Bethlehem. He has existed throughout all eternity. And the plan for Him to leave the riches of heaven and take on flesh and come down to us and become one of us in order to accomplish salvation for us through his life, death, and resurrection was the plan from the jump, from the beginning. So the Christmas story, the story of Christ's coming is a story as old as time and older. And the earliest mention of it is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This verse is referred to by many theologians as the Proto-Evangelium. That's the fancy term for it, 25 cent term there. That just means first gospel. In this verse, we have the first mention of the Christmas story and of God's great gospel. In this verse of scripture, we see the promise of the coming of the Messiah. This verse is as important a verse as any you will find in scriptures. One of the most important Christmas verses in the Bible. Martin Luther said this of this verse of scripture. Look at this quote on the screen. This text embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that is to be found anywhere in the scriptures. Wow, that's a statement, isn't it? So we need to focus on this verse here this morning. 
Now, to understand the, the promise God made in Genesis 3.15 and what it means for us today, especially this time of year, we need to understand something about the context surrounding this verse. And while many of you are familiar with this context around this verse and, and, and others here in the first few chapters, bear with me while I take just a moment to explain to you the events leading up to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, because it's necessary that I do that. In the first two chapters of Genesis, you have the account of God creating all that is. We're told that before the beginning began, God was, and He created everything. Day and night, sky and, and sea, land and plants, sun and moon and stars, fish and birds, animals of the land. And on the sixth day, he also created man and woman from the man. And we're told that when he created man and woman, he made them different from the rest of his creation because he created them in his image. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. You can flip there or just look up on the screen. We're told this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God created both man and woman. In his image, placed them in a garden paradise and gave them authority over his created world, but also placed them under his authority. He told Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So God shows man here, while you are unique in that you're created in my image, and while you have authority, you're not God, I am. And you're to be under my authority. Then he gives them this command. And after that, we're told the antagonist of the gospel story comes into the picture. Satan enters into this garden paradise in the form of a serpent, and he tempts Adam and Eve to question God's word and to doubt his goodness. He, he tells them, you will not die if you eat of that tree, but instead you'll be like God. He tells them, God told you a lie. He's trying to keep you from true greatness. And Eve listened to the serpent over God, chose to rebel. We're told that Adam listened to the voice of his wife and chose to rebel. And, and Eve, she took of the fruit and ate it. And after that, gave some to her husband who was with her. And, and he ate. And because of the sin of Adam, because he's the head of the human race, because of his sin, sin entered into the world. And along with that sin, death entered in as well. And this perfect world that, that God had made and his perfect people that he created to live, that he created in his image to, to live in his presence with him were ruined and wrecked by sin. This place of paradise was lost along with the people of paradise. And as God surveys 
the moral wreckage caused by man's rebellion and fall, he immediately begins to pass judgment on all of those responsible. He begins where the sin began with the serpent, and then he passes on judgment to the woman and then the man. But coupled with God's words of punishment and judgment, God also gives a message of hope and redemption right here in Genesis chapter 3. And that message is what we're going to focus on this morning. Now this message is a message of judgment against Satan. But notice it's a message of hope and grace and salvation to mankind. Look at it with me. Genesis 3 verse 15. God says to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice what we have here. God basically tells Satan here, you have started something that you're not going to be able to finish. While you think you have won a major victory over me here, you have sealed your fate. You've put the final nail in your coffin. What you have started this day is going to eventually lead to your end. That's what he tells him. He says, because of what you've done, because you have deceived man and have led him astray, there is going to be this ongoing feud, this endless conflict between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And though you have deceived man this day and will enjoy this victory for years to come, there is one coming in this family who is going to go to war with you. And while you will strike his heel, as it says in the NIV, He's going to crush your head. Now, what on earth does that have to do with Christmas? Some of you may be asking that. You know, when I think of Christmas, I think of Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and Bethlehem and angels and shepherds and, and later wise men, though they show up on the scene early in some people's nativities. I don't think about Adam and Eve and Satan and heads being crushed at Christmas. What does this story have to do with the Christmas story? Well, let's think about it. Who is God referring to here in Genesis 3? Who is the seed of the woman to come? Who is, who is going to be born? Who is going to rise up and crush Satan? Who's God referring to here? Jesus. That's right. Think about that. On the heels of the fall, we have the hope of Christ. How about that? Right there in Genesis 3. He's speaking to Satan here and he says, you've started something you're not going to be able to finish. Though you have played a key role in man's rebellion by deceiving Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, while you have chosen to believe a lie over the truth and have rebelled against me, there is one coming in your family who is going to make things right once again. He is going to deliver a fatal blow to Satan and is going to make right all that was wronged here in Eden. Folks, that's what the Christmas story is all about. There are a lot of Christmas stories we hear this time of year, some scriptural, some not. But the message of Genesis 3.15, the promise that is made here is at the heart 
of the Christmas message. Three reasons why. One, because in this promise, it explains to us the reason for Christ's birth. In Genesis 3.15, we have the reason for the Christmas story. That's point number one, the reason for Christ's birth. Why did Jesus have to come? You ever think about that this time of year? Why did he have to take on flesh, be born in Bethlehem? Genesis 3 tells us why. The reason he had to come is because of the fall. Have you ever considered that? The fact that Christmas would be completely unnecessary were it not for sin. I heard a pastor once put it in this way. The sin of mankind is the black backdrop of the Christmas message. So true. It is. We often say at this time of year, you'll see the bumper stickers. Jesus is the reason for the season. And he is. But why did he have to come? Because of sin. So we could also say that that sin is the reason for the season. That just doesn't look as good on a Christmas card. I was telling those in the first service. You, you may not want to put your picture up there, you know, with your family. Sin is the reason for the season and send them off by the dozen. You could if you want to. When the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream in Matthew 1, he says in verse 21, you shall call this child Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. His very name means salvation. The Lord saves. That's the reason he's come. And we learn this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And while we don't like to think about sin and the fall and about the fact that, that our world is, is, is ruined and, and wrecked because of sin, we don't like to think of that this time of year. We like to think of Christmas trees and stockings hung by the mantle and Bing Crosby, right? When I was kind of going through this sermon, my youngest, Joy, was sitting in there and I was kind of going through these notes and she looked up and she goes, yeah, that's what I think about. Right. That's where our minds go. Right. Listen, to truly understand the wonderful message of Christmas, we need to understand our sinfulness. We need to understand our desperate need of a savior. That's what the Christmas message is all about. It's about the fact that we have sinned against a righteous and holy God. And because of our sin, because we have set ourselves against God, God is rightly set against us. And while we deserve his wrath and punishment because of our sin, instead, because of his, his great love for us, God has extended grace and mercy to us by sending us his son. That's what the Christmas message is about. We live in a world where messages about man's sin and God's wrath and judgment are not popular. Even in Christian circles. But listen, if we don't focus on this, on man's sin and, and God's great wrath, one, we just have to kind of discard the Bible if we don't focus on that because there's hardly a page you can turn to in Scripture and not see that teaching. But, but two, if we don't, we don't focus on this, we will not know what makes God's grace so amazing. What makes the gift of His Son so glorious? What makes the Christmas mes message so special? We have to focus on the fact that without Him, without Christ, we are dead, helpless, and hopeless. 
I want to encourage you this Christmas to spend time thinking on that. The reason Christ came. Think about your sinfulness and God's great mercy and grace this time of year, especially this time of year. Pass it on to others. We should think about that, especially this time of year. And I pray that that would lead you as you focus on these truths. As you focus on the theology of Christmas, which is what we're going to be focusing on these next two weeks. Pray that that would lead you to be more thankful and more worshipful this Christmas than you've ever been before. That's the first reason I, I, I believe the promise made in Genesis 3.15 is, is at the heart of the Christmas message because in it we, we see the reason for Christ's birth. Another reason is because in Genesis 3.15 we see one of the great Old Testament revelations of Christ's birth. That's another reason. We need to focus on this passage because of point number two, the revelation of Christ's birth. Some have asked this question, how, how do we know Genesis 3.15 is about Jesus? Well, we get some hints here. One is more subtle than the other. Genesis 3.15, God tells Satan, let me read it again. I'm going to read it a few times for us. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, while it's not uncommon in scripture to refer to a child as being a woman's offspring, usually a man is mentioned as well, or the child is simply mentioned as being from the offspring of the man. That's not the case here. The man's not brought up at all. Which is why many of the early church fathers and Biblical scholars throughout history believe that uh, this reference here is, is ultimately about, about Mary. The virgin birth is also mentioned more specifically in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah prophesies of one who will be born of a virgin. Listen to Isaiah seven fourteen. You have this in your, your scripture reading this week. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Does that sound familiar to you? Because Matthew quotes it in Matthew 1. That's clear, right? As, as clear a prophecy as, as any we have in the scriptures written hundreds of years before Christ came. Amazing. Isaiah prophesies of this one we will learn about and who we see here. We'll learn about in Matthew 1 and Luke 1 and John 1, but who we see here in Genesis 3.15, who is the offspring of the woman, of this one to be born of a virgin. Listen to Matthew's comments on Isaiah's prophecy. We have it up on the screen. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So clear prophecy here on the virgin birth from the Old Testament. And, and suddenly we see it in Genesis chapter 3. Another reason I believe Genesis 3 is speaking of Jesus is because of what we are told the offspring of the woman will do to the serpent. He is going to crush him. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14, we're told that Christ came to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. John tells us in 1 John chapter 3 verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Folks, this here is the Christmas story. And, and, and this here is what God said would happen all the way back in, in Genesis Jesus is the offspring of the woman. He is God's promised one, sent to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, which leads us right into our last point. I'm sort of stealing thunder from the last point. We've been talking about this already, but notice here, we see all the way back in Genesis 3, we have this promise of a Messiah to come. In this verse, we are given the, the reason for Christmas, the reason for Christ's birth. We also see the revelation, the Old Testament revelation of Christ's birth. And notice, we also see here what will result from Christ's birth. Notice the result of Christ's birth. Let's look at it one last time. Genesis 3.15. God tells Satan, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Again, God tells the serpent, tells Satan, while you believe you've won a major victory over me, this major triumph for you is going to result in your downfall. And the reason why is because while you have deceived man through man is going to come the God-man who is going to crush you. That's what he says. And as we continue to read God's word, we learn that's exactly what happens. We learn that in the fullness of time, God sends his son, the eternal son, the second person of the Trinity to earth. We're told he comes willingly. He willingly steps off his throne and into the world in which he created. And we are told that he humbles himself to such an extent that he becomes a little cooing and gooing baby. He grows up in an average home. He walks the streets with the common man. And in his humanity, he grows in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And he, he lives the life that, that Adam failed to live, the life we could never live, a perfect, sinless life, only to lay it all down at Calvary on the cross for us. As we sing in here on occasion, he was the perfect sacrifice, crushed by God for us. Bearing in his hurt all that we deserve. He was misjudged for our misdeeds. And he suffered silently. The only guiltless man in all of history. Christ did this. All of this. So that we through him could have life eternal. So that we through him could be restored back 
to the place we were in right relationship with God from this time forth and forever secure. We also learn that by accomplishing this work, not only did Christ provide great salvation for us, but a devastating blow to Satan. As we said already, 1 John 3, read those verses this week. Christ came to destroy him, to destroy his works. When Satan tempted man and man sinned, death entered into the world as a result of sin. And not just physical death, spiritual death. Not only did, did man eventually go on to die in a physical sense, which was not the way God created things initially, but more importantly than that, there was a spiritual death that occurred at the fall. Man died spiritually at this fall. Man's perfect relationship with God was, was shattered, and there was nothing that man could do in his own strength to change matters. No matter how hard he tried, he could not move himself back into a right relationship with God. He could not restore paradise for himself, man was in a helpless and hopeless state. And that was the great power that Satan had for years to come. His great power was in the fact that God is a just God. And in the fact that he has to punish sin. Therefore, he has to punish us because we're sinners. And there's nothing we can do to change that on our own. And as a result of, of our sin, God's wrath is set against us. And that's the great victory. Of Satan in Genesis 3. But what Satan failed to see was that God had an answer from the start. And that answer was Christ. Though man fell and was in a helpless and hopeless state, God's plan from the beginning was to send his son to live the perfect life we could never live for us in our place and offer his life up as payment conquering death through his death and resurrection so that in him we would not have death but have life eternal. That's the gospel. That's the gospel right there. Paul says in that great chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 through 57, I don't have this reference, I'll just read it to you. Many of you know it well. Oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But then he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ removed the sting of death. How did he do it? He allowed death to plunge its stinger into him at the cross, and it was left there. Christ bore the whole sting of death for us, so that death for us who are in him has no sting. He conquered death with death so that we might have life. Christ endured God's wrath for us so that we could be saved from God's wrath. That is the gospel. That's what the Christmas story is all about. It's about the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15 coming to crush Satan by crushing death through his death and resurrection. Now, folks, that message right there should cause you to have more than just a merry little Christmas this year. 
That should cause joy to well up in your heart and spill out all over everywhere. That's why we need to enter this place each and every Sunday, worshipful no matter what's going on in our lives. Because we have this great hope. There are a lot of great modern epic stories and movies in our world today, but they have nothing on this story. This story is the true story of the great triumph of good over evil, light over darkness, and it is indeed good news. My prayer for you this Christmas is that as you're reading stories about the historicity of these accounts, which you should read, the birth in Bethlehem and about the angels and the shepherds and the wise men, my prayer is that you would also think about the theology of Christmas. Think on this great promise made and fulfilled by Christ at Calvary. I pray that this Christmas season you would not simply think about a baby being born, but about God fulfilling that great promise made in the beginning on the heels of the fall in Genesis 3, that he was going to send his son to crush Satan, to conquer death through his death and resurrection and provide salvation for all who trust in Him. Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you made Christ Lord of your life? If not, I urge you to today. I want to remind you, like I have in the past, that this invitation to trust in Christ extends beyond this service. I'm going to be in the foyer here. In just a little bit, if you need me or, or find one of our elders or deacons to talk to, please, please do that. Trust in Christ. Give your life to Him today. Turn from your sin. Bow the knee to King Jesus and be saved. Let's pray together.